0: church. Um, thank you. It's a real privilege to be speaking to you this morning. Um, so, first off, I just, my first question for you this morning is, when was the last time that you got in trouble for something? You did something wrong, and you had to either prove your innocence or admit your guilt. Um, admittedly, for me, most of the times I do that, that uh, these days is when I've um, had something from the cupboard that was perhaps saved for a, a special occasion or, or a purpose, and Jess asked me whether I've uh, uh, eaten the, the, those crisps that she was saving. I'm sort of saying... Munching no as the sort of the crisp crumbs are sort of falling down my, my top. Um, but I've got a, a shocking revelation of uh, a part of my criminal past uh, where I did do something wrong. Um, and it's, uh, you might not think of me the same way after I tell you the story. So I just, you know, pray for your grace and, and your forgiveness here this morning. <clears throat> so if you can imagine a very young Phil, maybe like uh, only four or five. And, um, as a good good Christian, you know, my target for this, this sort of grand larsenery was the local Christian bookshop. Can you, can you imagine it? <coughs> um, so, uh, classic child of the 90s, local Christian bookshop. My mum used to go there all the time, and um, perhaps she was browsing the, the, the music section or something, and I was left alone to wander the aisles, look at all like, the, the knickknacks for the, for the, for the kids. Um, and I believe I you know, found the, the greatest treasure of a, a 90s Christian child was a, a rubber that said, um, Jesus loves you, you know, with a big, smiley face on it. Like, quality 90s Christian merch right there. That was, you know, The one thing that, that everyone wanted. And smiling sweetly, I go to my mum and say, oh, Mum, I really want this rubber, can I have it? And she politely, politely says, No, you've got plenty of rubbers at home, you don't need to buy this. And so I didn't like that answer very much, so I snuck around the corner, and put the rubber into my pocket. <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Build up, build up a bit of the, the, the drama, a bit of the tension. So being really, really stupid, I then at the dinner table that night, then brandished this rubber, <laughs> very happy that I had it, without actually remembering that I'd actually um, stolen it. And uh, I think my face dropped very, very quickly as uh, the reaction of my parents, who knew I'd stolen this rubber, um, obviously. And you know, suddenly you know, my dessert was being taken away from me. It was sent to my room. My you know piggy bank opened up, and all my hard-earned savings were then had to go and um, go back to the uh, Christian bookshop and uh, profusely apologise, pay, and return the rubber. And uh, yeah, I don't think I had much pocket money then for the, the next couple of weeks. Um, and this was despite, in all of my protests, it was only a small rubber. They wouldn't miss it very much. I deserve the rubber. Why, I'm, a very, I'm a good boy. Well, I was a good boy. Um, why wouldn't my mum buy this rubber for me? And reflecting, uh, you know, as a, as a taste of, you know, crime and punishment, um, perhaps it was uh, fortunate for me that I did choose a Christian bookshop because the owner was actually very gracious in how they dealt with me. I, was, I wasn't, like, banned forever. And, um, yeah, the, uh, the justice um, dealt out by my parents was actually very, like, restorative and also a very harsh deterrence for me to act like that in the future, you know. I loved my dessert as a kid, didn't want that to be taken away from me. But despite my guilt, despite everything that I knew what I was doing was wrong, I still tried to defend myself, I still tried to um, convince someone that it was just a mistake, and it wasn't me who I, who I was. I knew what yeah. I was doing was wrong, but I was just too young to actually know that to hide the evidence. That was, the, that was the, le- the lesson. And, you know, I'm older and mature these days, and I'd like to think that, you know, I've, I've learned and I've grown, and I know when I've done something wrong, and I can go up to someone and say, yeah, I admit my mistakes here. But in actual fact, I've probably just learned to hide the evidence better. I've just learned, you know, I know how to hide these things, how to avoid getting in trouble for these things as opposed to actually maturing and saying, I actually know that I'm, I've made a mistake here. And I feel like in a lot of those moments, we never really have the maturity to own up to our mistakes from the very beginning. Very, very quick to justify when we do something wrong and provide reasons for it. Uh, sorry I said that, I was just really tired. I didn't mean what I said. Or well, they did this to me first, and my reaction, was just a reaction I just spoke out in the moment. I didn't mean to say it like that. Or, I I deserve this, I deserve this. Two wrongs make a right. But I wonder whether you've actually been accused or punished for something that you didn't do. Sometimes this feels like you know that that doesn't really happen to us, but I think a lot of the time our intentions get misconstrued a lot. You've done this to me, so clearly you're doing it because of this reason. Why didn't you do this? Clearly you don't think of me that way. I need this, but you haven't provided it to me. People may jump to conclusions about why we're doing something vastly different from our own very own reasoning. And as we continue our Encounters with Jesus series this morning, I just wanted to take one example as we enter Holy Week um, and look at the life of Jesus. I just want to take one um, example from Jesus' life. Um, when Jesus was um, put up up to trial uh, with with Pontius Pilate. So you can turn to me to Matthew 27. I'll be reading from the ESV if you want to follow along. Starting in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Into verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear of that, how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner they wanted. And they then had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas, Pilate said to them, And what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. What really struck me in that verse was just how Pilate was amazed with Jesus' silence. I don't know whether that to do those accusations for you for something that you haven't done have happened to you, but for me it's the worst feeling in the world. It's horrible when you're just trying to defend yourself because someone's effectively lying about you. And it's quite an irrational fear that I have that I'm going to be accused of something like drastic maybe stealing something a bit more than a rubber this time. But you know, maybe I've watched too many uh, crime shows or crime dramas where um, someone's sort of set up for a murder that they didn't commit, and there's a great conspiracy. And you're watching the, the, those shows at the time, and it's like a very visceral like, reaction to the, the drama that's unfolding on the screen. When you can see injustice taking place clear as day, we have a very, very strong reaction to it. And this is exactly what's happening to Jesus at this moment because um, he's been set up by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They absolutely despised Jesus. Not only did Jesus call um, them out directly, pointing at their hypocrisy and the obsession with their outward appearance and how they appear to people that versus what was on the inside, what, what was in their hearts. He challenged the power that they, he, that they had over the people. If you've got some time this week, I encourage you to go read Matthew 23, which is um, Jesus's... Um, speech against the Pharisees. And you think, you know, Jesus meek and mild, but he's not here. He's very, very harsh to the Pharisees. And it just shows Jesus' heart to hypocrisy and what he saw at the time to those that were trying to control people for their own gain. The truth is, the Pharisees and religious leaders wanted to take on the responsibility for what was considered holy and what wasn't. They wanted to control the, the holiness and rig the game so they always came out on top. They always came out looking the best. Jesus came in direct opposition to that, saying everyone had sinned, everyone had fallen short, and the only way to the Father was through him. So these Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they were bound by their own laws from killing Jesus themselves and the laws that Rome had imposed on them as well. So instead, they take Jesus to the uh, authorities of the day and accuse him of crimes against the Roman government. It says uh, on the version of this story in in Luke 23, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then then Pilate announced to the chief priests of the crowd, I find no basis for, for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. I wonder whether this accusation about paying taxes to Caesar sounds familiar to any of us here this morning because it's the exact thing that they tried to trap Jesus with uh, in Matthew Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion You are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, "Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax." And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, "Whose likeness and inscription is this?" They said, "Caesar's." Then he said to them, "Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." When they heard it, they marvelled and left him and went away. So they've already tried to trap, trap Jesus with this great ploy to get him to say something against Caesar, so they can go to the authorities and say, oh, look, this guy, Jesus, is plotting against you. They failed, but in their desperation to get rid of Jesus, they went with the plan anyway. They just went for an out, outright fabrication, an outright lie. The Pharisees knew that their power was being threatened, and they do anything to stop it. And this is a pattern that we see in our own world today. As believers, as Christians, we sometimes get opposition um, against us. People feel threatened because of our faith, either because of their own negative experiences of our faith or other preconceived notions that they've picked up. But we are to expect opposition when we go out and pro- proclaim the truth of Jesus. Uh, my parents ha- went to a funeral of a longtime uh, friend I believer this week, and his name was Paul, um, and um, he sadly passed away. And my dad was telling me that he was effectively fired uh, from his job for praying for his colleagues. Um, so one day, Paul's boss overheard him praying for a co-worker who asked asked Paul to pray for her. This was um, it w- wasn't uh, unsolicited. They asked Paul to pray for her, um, and the boss overheard him praying and took him aside and said, "Don't want you praying here. Don't believe any of this stuff. Don't don't please don't pray um, at work." For whatever reason, clearly had some issues um, against against Christians. So a few months pass, and then Paul's having a meeting with his boss, and he says, are you still praying? And Paul says, yes, I still pray for my colleagues. You know, they ask me to pray, and I pray for them. A few weeks later, Paul's called into his boss's office, and we're sacked for gross misconduct. The reasoning was not following a direct instruction from his boss for not praying at work. I was pretty shocked at hearing this, because it's not something that you hear every day. And to me, it was, it was clear that there was a, a case for unfair dismissal here. But actually, what happened is Paul kept silent in this situation, and he left quietly, putting the whole ordeal behind him. And originally, when, I, when my, my dad told me this, I was incensed at the injustice of it all. Um, I was sad that Paul's boss never saw the error of his actions. He was never sort of like publicly tried and said, that you've done something wrong here. And I asked my dad about this, and he said the same way. and He, he, he explained to Paul that he had a case that he could take, um and paul knew this at the time but he just felt peace from walking away from the situation not taking up the justice that was rightfully his and walking away and rem- reminded of um in paul's example here reminded of Jesus' words from two passages in john uh, the first is john 15 if the world hates you keep in mind that it, that it hated me first if you belong to the world it would love you as its own as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, but they do not know the one who sent me. Then John 15. Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus warns us here that we're going to be facing opposition and resistance when we go out in his name in the world. The world despises Jesus. Because again, similar to the Pharisees, Jesus removes the control that the world has. The first thing that we do when we give our lives over to Jesus is declare that Jesus is King and Lord of all, giving over rightful control to him. That's our first step as Christians to acknowledge that we're not in charge, we're not in control, and that Jesus is rightfully in charge. And that means that the world can be hostile to us as as the Pharisees were to Jesus. Now, I just want to make it clear here, um, we, we live in a very, very tolerant country, um, and we're not, by any stretch of the imagination, we are not persecuted here. Um, and if you disagree with that, then I'd encourage you to, to find out what it means to be a Christian in Nigeria, Somalia, India, or Pakistan. Very, very, very different to what we experience here. And whilst it's important, um, I think the, the, the example of um, my, my, my parents' friend, Paul, I think it's important to know that actually Paul had recourse under the legal framework, under the legal system, but he chose not to enact it, he chose not to trigger it. And so, one of the worst things that could happen to us is that we could lose our jobs, we could lose family, we could lose friends, but not really in danger of losing our lives. And that is a daily concern for a lot of believers around the world. It's important to pray for them as we reflect on this this morning but also praise God for their unwavering faith in those situations. It's a real example to us. But reg- regardless, we are to expect some opposition. And in our behavior up to that, Jesus warns us to be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. We ensure that those who come in opposition to us don't have any genuine issues that they can use as a wedge to attack our faith. A lot of cases of Christian persecution that I see in this country Christians haven't always held themselves into the highest regard, the highest standard. There are absolutely some genuine cases of persecution. But It's important to hear, to stress how blameless we need to live our lives. And that sometimes means we have to lose the argument, give up the ground, go out of our way to make peace in the face of an injustice to us. And we have freedom and the ability to do that based on Jesus' um, Heavenly Father is the ultimate judge, the originator of justice and peace. Just as He made Himself smaller to give us life, we sometimes need to do the same for those around us and give out the grace that we've received fully to those who disagree with us. But we don't have to be silent on everything. We're asked and required to proclaim the truth, and Jesus said so in the verses above. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in the hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. In these moments, we're asked to bear witness to who Jesus is. Jesus does this himself when he's questioned. In the passage in Matthew, Jesus only answers one question Are you the King of the Jews? which Jesus answers, yes, you've said so. It's Another way of saying yes. Jesus doesn't dignify the false accusations, but when asked whether he was king, he said yes, he agreed. And we see this pattern time and time again in Acts. When believers were persecuted, when they were brought for trial, they didn't answer the charges, they used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. If you read um, the passage in Acts where Stephen is stoned to death, there's some charges lobbied against him. And then he's asked the question, are these charges true? And he starts off with, um, back in the day, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. So he's gone off on a complete tangent already. It's fantastic. And even Paul does this when he's in prison in Caesarea. Um, he appeals to be, um, to be tried in front of Caesar. And later um, to the governor Festus at the time. And he remarks, Festus remarks saying, he didn't have to do that. If he just made his case, I would have set him free. But now he's actually asked to go in front of Caesar. Now he's got to go a long journey to Rome and he's going to be in prison for a lot longer. Paul chose the harder journey for the opportunity to preach the gospel to Caesar. And I've tried to start doing this in my everyday life. The real opposition I get is from people asking me how I can still go to church or believe in God with all the terrible mistakes and the grave areas that the church has made over the years. Um, more recently with the um, sexual abuse cases that the Catholic Church have uh, has come to light and the ensuring cover-up um, that they, that they um, acted on. Um, and these news stories pop up in the news and they naturally get my non-Christian friends to ask me about it. And I used to argue sort of on an intellectual level with them previously. I'd say, oh, you know, they're the exception, not all Christians are like that, or the church is net good overall. Look at all the good things the church does. Look at them serving the poor, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless. And really, those arguments don't achieve much at all. People sort of, yeah, eyes glaze over. They know I'm just like acting defensively on the church. And now, simply, instead I say, I believe because I have a faith that God is who he says he is, and that he sent his son Jesus to die for the numerous things that I've done wrong. And his son, Jesus, told us to go and live alongside others and tell them about him and to meet and worship with other believers as one church. And unfortunately, because we're all human and make a ton of mistakes, uh, churches can really hurt and damage people. It's just an unfortunate fact of life. We get it wrong a lot of the time, but that doesn't change who God is. So I focus on God as much as possible to ensure that I'm acting as he wants me to act. So really, I just use it as an excuse to preach the gospel. And this is way more effective than trying to act defensively in in those situations. And it's the truth. I'm not here this morning because of how awesome this church is. I'm here because of how awesome God is. That's the only reason why I come. Being in tune with God's will is really beneficial in these situations. And God can actually use the opposition that we receive as an opportunity to act. Because often my parents, uh, friend Paul, got fired from his job. He started up a very, very successful consultancy business. And God used him in ways and means that he could have never imagined being under that old job that he got fired from. Jesus said himself in Matthew 10, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The harvest is really plentiful. And sometimes we labor in the same places, in the same towns, in the same jobs, And all we get is opposition. We're wondering, God, why won't you break through here? And Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. Move on. You've tried. I'm calling you to somewhere else where perhaps people will listen listen to you. Gospel of John expands on what Jesus said a bit more in John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be here fighting. I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And just like Jesus, we are to bear witness to the truth. A truth that Pilate can see, and a truth that Pilate can understand. And despite Pilate not understanding, who Jesus was. Pilate really tries to get out of executing Jesus. um, This is what I've uh, really taken from this passage, going over it recently. I I love Jesus's answers here. He's saying, you know, if I'm trying to overthrow Rome, I'm doing a pretty rubbish job because I've been arrested. So it's not, not gone very well. But it's clear to me that Jesus could have stopped this sham trial if he really wanted to we see time and time again that Pilate wanted to free Jesus. He repeatedly says to the crowd that he's innocent. In the account in John, he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, so he sends him to Herod to try and pass the buck on to him. His wife tells him he's innocent. But in the light of Jesus' silence, the crowds and religious leaders were shouting the loudest, and Pilate gave in. Let alone Jesus sending legions legions of angels to save him, he could have done it with a few words. We get to the actual reason behind Jesus' silence, that he knew he had to die for us. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew that this was the father's will and the obedient Jesus allowed this injustice, injustice to happen. He was silent to let the judgment pass. John 19. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you had the greatest sin. God is in control and God is sovereign. We need to understand this in the greater context of what's happening in our lives. And if we're to live radically different lives following Jesus, we need this time with Jesus to say, God, not my will, but yours. I know that normally my selfish desires trump those of me wanting to to will God's kingdom here on earth for me to go out and do God's will. And that limits the actions that normally I would take. My only actions are self-preserving or in my own self-interest. I'm not doing a very good job of being Jesus' hands and feet. And so I need that quiet time with God, the daily battle to give over my control to him and say, not your will, not my will, but yours. To look at the bigger picture and realize that to save my life with God, I need to lose my life to God. And we get to do this because Jesus died. Jesus created a way back to us, to the Father, despite our sins. And for us today, Jesus continues to be silent. In the final judgment, when the the list of our transgressions are being read out, Jesus is the prosecutor, and he remains silent. He has every right to charge us with every crime, every transgression, to throw the book at us. But he doesn't doesn't even keep the list of our transgressions because he doesn't need them. Instead, he tells how much he loves us, that he died for us, and the things that we've done wrong against God have all been washed away. And what strikes me in this story, um, if you join us in the, the Walk of Witness on Friday, there's a great piece of liturgy that we all read out and the crowd takes, on, on Friday, the, the crowd doing the walk of witness, takes the part of the crowd that say to crucify Jesus. And it's you know, a message that we, we are also part of, um, sinful, sinful man that, that put Jesus on the cross. But in today's modern world, I don't think we're the crowd, because they actually acknowledge their guilt and sin for killing Jesus. They said the blood is, will be on us and our children. I actually think we're more like Pilate, given every opportunity to do the right thing, but we fold at the, at the last minute. We listen to the crowd, we ignore Jesus, and commit the sin knowing it's wrong, but without acknowledging our guilt. We try and wash our hands clean of the guilt, an empty gesture. We do it for our sense of control. The ability to do, our, to do things our own way we do it out of fear, just like Pilate feared the response of the crowd. We fear the response of those around us. But in these moments, Jesus still comes for us, gently points out the error of our ways. and tells us, hey, forget, forget about your mistakes. I've dealt with those. Let's focus on building a place for God here, honor here on earth instead. Can I have the band when I come back up? I just want to finish this morning reading Isaiah 53 over us all. I'd just like to really invite God here as we enter Holy Week, as we re- reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Just to reflect on the magnitude of Jesus' actions and his death on the cross. Jesus chose to obey the will of the Father and chose to be silent in front of the man who could set him free for the sake of us. And the majesty and the wonder of this action, this otherworldly action, can't be underestimated. So just invite us now just to, as I read out this passage in Isaiah, just to reflect on what Jesus has done for us and maybe take some time out this week as, as we end the Holy Week, just to take some time out with Jesus and thank him for what he's done. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid it on him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this, his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand.